from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Jackson. Today is Thursday, the 11th of January, 2024. And for this first recording of 2024, we have a repeat guest on LabMind, Dr. Karen Moser is medical director of the hemostasis and thrombosis laboratory at ARUP. She's also associate professor of pathology at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Dr. Moser received her medical degree from St. Louis University, followed by anatomic and clinical pathology residency and hematopathology fellowship, all at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Karen Moser, welcome to LabMind. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be back. So one of the motivations for this interview is a webinar that you will be presenting fairly soon for the ARUP Institute for Learning. And I understand it has to do with a reflexive and consultative approach to patients with unexplained prolonged clotting times. So what was the motivation behind this project? First, we had requests from clients for a one-stop option for evaluating prolonged clotting times that could be performed on a single blood collection from patients. So there seemed to be a need for both a streamlined testing strategy and for a summary interpretation of the entire group of tests that were performed. For testing panels that require multiple different coagulation tests, such as lupus anticoagulant evaluation, there are expert guidelines that advise us to provide a written summative interpretation of the entire panel to give readers a clear picture of the overall story the panel is telling so they don't get lost in individual numbers. Since evaluation of prolonged clotting times like PT and PTT involves even more tests than lupus anticoagulant evaluation, we thought it was only logical to give a written interpretation for that panel as well. Sounds like there are a number of tests that are sort of behind the scenes, if you will, the you wouldn't expect nor want clinicians to have to order them individually. But there are also multiple different laboratory tests to actually detect the lupus anticoagulant. What is it about the lupus anticoagulant that there isn't just a single one-shot test available for it? You know, troponin, you don't have to run three different troponins and then sort of holistically look at the results of all of them. You just you have one high-quality troponin test. Why is lupus anticoagulant so hard to test for? I think there's a few reasons. Lupus anticoagulants are fairly heterogeneous in their behavior, meaning they don't always show their effects in different clot-based assays in the same way. So you're saying they're biologically different in different patients? Yes, they are. And the way I explain this to residents and students is that we have to give the lupus anticoagulant a few chances to show itself to us in the laboratory. We can't just use one test and say, oh, well, not there. Knowing that they're variable, we have to use different methods to look for them. So when you do this testing, you mentioned that you provide a summative report at the end. What sort of goes into that report? Do you individually sign out these cases, for example? I do, and my colleagues in the hemostasis thrombosis section of our laboratory also review and interpret these cases one by one. So it is a very individualized process for each patient. That's something that we're proud of contributing. 
I think there's several contributing factors. Certainly this holistic assessment, as you alluded to with the lupus anticoagulant panel and the prolonged clotting time panel, it's more useful if I can tell a story about what the results are saying than if I just generate a report that has the names of many different tests with associated numbers and not much context or explanation. So we feel strongly that telling a story of what's happening for each patient or what we hypothesize is happening for each patient is important. There's also a lot of pre-analytic factors in hemostasis testing that are important to consider. And laboratorians, I think, have an excellent perspective on all the different ways that tests can give us surprising or unexpected or potentially false positive or false negative results. So we as pathologists feel it's important to provide that context for physicians using the results from our laboratory. So this includes considering things like, how was the sample collected? Could there be any factors that might contribute to the pattern of results I'm seeing? Could there be an anticoagulant there? And if so, do I have a tool to get rid of it in the laboratory so we can see the native state of the patient? There's also several medications that can interfere in coagulation testing. We've talked about anticoagulant medications, but also hemophilia therapies can cause unusual patterns of coagulation test results. So there's a lot to consider beyond just what is the laboratory instrument telling me is the result. And wrapping all of that together with the clinical context of an individual patient is also important. Is this a patient who had a prolonged PT and no other symptoms, and we're just trying to figure out why that could be? Or is this somebody with a long-standing history of bleeding where we're really trying to evaluate a bleeding disorder of unknown cause that may have prolonged clotting times as an initial laboratory? How long have you been offering this particular panel? The prolonged clotting time panel has been available at ARUP since 2017. So over the past six or seven years, what kinds of things have you observed? Yeah, we recently performed a systematic evaluation of the findings in our prolonged clotting time panels over about a four-year span at ARUP. About a quarter of the panels that were submitted to us didn't actually have prolonged clotting times in our hands at the screening stage, so they didn't go on to any further reflexive testing. And that might be because of differences in reagents used at the local laboratory, and ARUP, we certainly know there is some variation in PT and PTT reagents, and there could be mild abnormalities in one laboratory that appear normal in another. It's also possible that those patients had a transient prolongation of one or more clotting times that just resolved by the time a subsequent specimen was submitted to ARUP. Our panel also successfully identified several clinically significant abnormalities. The most common finding in our panels that had prolonged clotting times was a lupus anticoagulant, which isn't surprising. Lupus anticoagulants are a common cause of unexpected prolonged clotting times, particularly unexpected prolonged PTT. The next most common patterns that we found were factor deficiencies, either combined factor deficiencies or single factor deficiencies. We had a mixture of patterns that suggested DIC and or liver disease with some multiple factor deficiency patients not exactly fitting into a specific diagnostic pattern. So those were more challenging to evaluate. 
One thing that was a little bit surprising is that the most common single factor deficiency we found was a mild deficiency of factor 12. We think that's because many physicians are using our panel to evaluate unexpected prolonged clotting times in outpatients. And since factor 12 deficiency is not associated with clinical bleeding, it makes sense that we might find it more frequently in that outpatient population. A minority of our cases had patterns that suggested von Willebrand disease, high titer factor 8 inhibitors, and dysfibrinogenemia. One encouraging finding is that only about 5% of the cases during our study period had prolonged clotting times that were solely explained by the presence of an anticoagulant medication. So we didn't see a high rate of drug interference in this study group. Although you did see some. We saw some. So that's actually quite a broad range of explanations of disorders and, and other things. So would it be fair to say that clinicians left to their own devices if they had to order all the individual tests, it makes you think that some of these things might get missed if you didn't have sort of a comprehensive approach available. I, I guess I'm asking you to speculate, but is that your impression? I think the answer might be sometimes. Certainly, we work with many hematologists with deep subspecialty knowledge in hemostasis and thrombosis care. And those are colleagues that I'm often asking, hey, what do you think I should do next? Or how would you approach this case? Experience varies, right? But even among subspecialty trained hematologists, there's a level of trust with the laboratory that they can say, hey, I have a patient that needs to be worked up for a prolonged PTT, let's say, and I can trust ARUP to make the right decisions so I don't have to spend so much time checking boxes or making sure the patient comes back for multiple visits to do this iterative way. We can have one visit for phlebotomy, submit sufficient sample for full evaluation, and the pathologist will choose the correct tests and wrap it up in a nice package for me. So I think there's an appreciation for simplicity there. And it's something that we see in other areas of the laboratory too. I'm thinking of hematopathology practice more broadly. There's certainly models in many health systems of pathologist-directed ordering to help make certain that bone marrow specimens or diagnosis of new acute leukemia are triaged appropriately. It's not that other physicians aren't capable it's that navigating healthcare systems is difficult, and anything we can do to streamline the process of identifying and selecting and ordering the correct laboratory tests, I think is a valuable service that laboratories can provide. You're in a privileged situation here. You're at an academic medical center with access to expert hematologists. I don't know what fraction of all patients with prolonged coag result are going to be in a setting where there's an expert hematologist nearby for an easy consult, but I'm going to guess it's definitely not most of the time. So just another argument for the consultative approach in the laboratory. You're saying I shouldn't sell myself short, that I'm providing useful consultation to my colleagues in internal medicine and family medicine and pediatrics. I think that's true. And again, you know, the simplicity argument holds no matter who the treating physician is. 
But you're right. This is a mechanism by which we can offer laboratory consultation to physicians in any specialty. And it's as simple as ordering a test. Now, I will say we also offer laboratory consultation to colleagues that call or email or otherwise contact the laboratory. But to get to that point, you have to know a little bit more about how the laboratory works. You have to know there's a pathologist here who will talk to you. So in addition to pre-analytic factors, are there any other sort of common categories of misdiagnosis that you come across in your world of COAG? So although it's not medication-related, I'm going to highlight another example of interference in laboratory tests where things may not be exactly as they seem. So a recent case of a patient that we evaluated here at the University of Utah comes to mind where the patient was referred to our center with a history of lupus anticoagulant. And based on some of the initial laboratory testing that was provided with the referral, it seemed as though this person might have a lupus anticoagulant. But what was very strange about this whole story is that the patient I think had one episode of venous thromboembolism, a deep vein thrombosis that was likely provoked. So there was some kind of thrombotic history that sounded like lupus anticoagulant. But what was more striking in the entire clinical presentation is that this was a person who had bleeding complications and not just easy bruising or mild gum bleeding with dental work. This was somebody that had severe internal bleeding requiring major surgery and organ removal to control the bleeding. So pretty significant bleeding. And that's an unusual pattern for lupus anticoagulants. There's a minority of lupus anticoagulants that are associated with antiphospholipid antibodies that have a particular affinity for prothrombin and result in hypoprothrombinemia. So the syndrome is called lupus anticoagulant hypoprothrombinemia syndrome. And that can happen. And those are patients that truly do have a lupus anticoagulant and an increased risk of bleeding. They also typically have a prolonged prothrombin time, which this patient did not have at all. So as we did some additional investigation and thought very carefully about this patient, we realized this is somebody with a low factor eight activity level and positive factor eight inhibitor tests. Here's where it gets really tricky because factor eight activity and factor eight inhibitor testing is ultimately based on PTT, which is one of our lupus anticoagulant diagnostic tests, as we mentioned before. So now it gets difficult to sort out, am I seeing interference of a lupus anticoagulant in factor eight assays, or am I seeing interference of a factor eight inhibitor in the lupus anticoagulant assays. And there's a few tricks that we can use. Certainly in this case, the clinical story was a huge clue. There are other assays for antiphospholipid antibodies that aren't clot-based, so anticardiolipin and beta-2-glycoprotein antibodies are ELISA-based tests. So that can be a way to sort of get at the idea, is there an antiphospholipid antibody like a lupus anticoagulant in this patient? those tests were negative, so no other antiphospholipid antibodies. There are alternate factor eight activity methods as well. Chromogenic factor eight activity doesn't suffer from interference from lupus anticoagulant. 
So in a patient like this, chromogenic factor eight activity could really potentially sort that out. So what was the answer? So this patient actually had a factor eight inhibitor that was initially misclassified as a lupus anticoagulant. And when appropriately treated for that, had significant relief of bleeding, but it was a, a challenging diagnostic journey to get to the right place. And what would have happened to this patient in the lack of the correct diagnosis? Again, speculation question. Yeah. But... We are firmly entering into speculation territory now. So risks I would worry about if somebody was misdiagnosed as having a lupus anticoagulant and not recognized to have a factor eight inhibitor would be they might be anticoagulated, which could if they truly had a factor eight inhibitor, put them at increased risk for excessive bleeding. And they wouldn't be appropriately treated for their factor eight inhibitor, which is usually treated with some degree of immunosuppression and potentially factor eight replacement, depending on the exact clinical context. So they might receive a therapy that could make their true condition worse, and they wouldn't be treated correctly for what they do have. It does seem like coag testing can have particularly high stakes. You know, bleeding can be dangerous, but clots can be pretty dangerous too. They can. Yeah, there's definitely a subset of tests in the hemostasis lab that will give any medical director heartburn. We've highlighted some challenging examples already. Another one that comes to mind for me are the tests in our laboratory for syndromes that can be rapidly life or limb-threatening. So I'm thinking of syndromes like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Those are tests where we really feel the pressure to generate results that are reliable, that are accurate, and that are very timely to facilitate rapid diagnosis and clinical care for those patients. So my impression is that, you know, testing for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is not necessarily just simple plug-and-play testing. Mm, sadly, no. There's layers to that, too, as well, right? There's antibody-based tests where we can look for the presence of anti-heparin PF4 antibodies. Many of those are ELISAs, and laboratories have lots of experience with those. The test that I'm thinking of that gives me heartburn as a medical director that I really want to make sure is performing well and right is our functional test for HIT, which is called the serotonin release assay. It's a highly manual, very complex test, and I spend a lot of my time as a medical director ensuring that we're providing high-quality results for this test that our reagents are performing accurately and consulting with the technologists about difficult cases. So there was this paper that came out in the past week on diagnostic errors that I thought was really interesting. This was in JAMA Internal Medicine. It was sort of like doing a data autopsy on patients who died in the hospital or who had to be transferred to the ICU because their condition worsened so much. The researchers took 2,500 consecutive patients who, again, had either died or required an ICU transfer, and then studied the medical records to look for any evidence of diagnostic error. And they found diagnostic errors in about a fourth of them. And in about 17% of these, it was a serious diagnostic error in that it either resulted in the death or the deterioration or, or some permanent injury to the patient. And I think a smaller percentage they attributed the death to is maybe six or seven percent. So the death was due to a diagnostic error. Again, these were of patients who this isn't all patients in the hospital, but it's all patients who either died or had to go to the ICU. 
The other thing about this paper that I thought was noteworthy was when they tried to analyze for the most common factors of these diagnostic errors. One of the two they pointed out was testing-related problems. Not too surprising since a lot of diagnosis involves some sort of testing and either lab testing or radiology or, or something else. What I wanted you to react to here is, is it surprising to you a significant minority of serious deteriorations in hospitalized patients could be due to some sort of a diagnostic error? I'm not terribly surprised by that, but I need to qualify that answer significantly. It's not that I think that physicians or other healthcare professionals are not compassionate, competent, capable individuals. I absolutely do think that. But I also know that healthcare systems today are becoming increasingly complex. And the process of diagnosis is really a fraught one where humans in a highly complex system are trying to integrate so many different sources of information. How does the patient in front of me look? What medications are they taking? What are the laboratory test results that I get? What does the pathologist say is happening in this patient's biopsy? What does the radiologist say is happening in this patient's CT scan? And on and on and on and on. The number of inputs sometimes feels endless. And it's difficult to incorporate all of that information, particularly in a high-stakes, rapid-paced environment such as an ICU. I don't mean to say that physicians are sloppy or not thoughtful. I'm just saying there is a real toll of being a human making complex decisions in a very, very complicated environment. So the processes are complicated and the biology of these patients has got to be incredibly complicated when you take the average hospitalized patient who has multiple problems going on and, and it's getting worse. Right. Hurry up, make a decision and don't be wrong. I can only imagine that clinicians would really appreciate the availability of expert consultation in things like COAG, where, as you point out, the test results are not always simple to interpret. What have been your experiences here at the University of Utah in terms of consultation with clinicians? What kinds of settings do you find yourself in talking about patient cases? Oh, several different types of situations. Certainly, I am fortunate to have excellent collegial relationships with my colleagues in hematology that I work most closely with in the hemostasis thrombosis laboratory and also in hematopathology work in different areas of the laboratory as well. And I'm really grateful that I work with the kinds of clinical colleagues who don't hesitate to call me when something seems off with their patient and say, what do you think? What should I try next? How, what do you make of these data? How can we explain them? And I also don't hesitate to call them and say, I, I'm seeing something that just doesn't quite make sense. Help me understand. Tell me some things about your patient. What could I be missing? So I really value those kinds of more informal interactions where I feel that we're part of the same team and providing care together. So that's part of what makes my job as a pathologist meaningful for me. The other more formal setting in which I experience collaborative care is in 
treatment planning conferences. And I want to highlight something that I think might be a little bit unusual here at the University of Utah. So many academic health centers and community health centers have treatment planning conferences, sometimes commonly called tumor boards, where we discuss patients with new diagnoses of cancer and physicians and healthcare professionals with many different types of expertise, all different medical specialties, could even include pharmacists, nurses, social workers, lots of different professionals come together to talk about that one patient, what we think the diagnosis is, and what the next best treatment step will be for them. So that's a pretty common model. A conference that we have started in recent years at the University of Utah uses a similar treatment planning conference model, but it's focused on benign hematology cases. So these are patients that we're seeing at our hospital and clinics and in our laboratory that have hemolytic anemias, that have all sorts of different disorders of hemostasis. So this is a really exciting opportunity for us to come together as a treatment team and bring all our different pieces of expertise. Sometimes we spend time focused on new medications that might be useful for patients, and that's an opportunity for me and my laboratory colleagues to learn what are the cutting-edge treatments that our colleagues are using. Sometimes we spend most of our discussion time focused on unusual laboratory test phenomena. So that's where we get to shine and say, oh, here's something that maybe not everybody knows about how this test works or how there can be interferences. So it's really been a fruitful time to discuss and just think together about how best to care for our patients. I love that. And I wonder how many other categories of medicine would benefit from these kinds of interactions, both formal and informal. Benign hematology, I don't know what percentage of healthcare that represents, but it's a relatively small percentage. It's an important percentage. I don't mean to dismiss it, but I'm just saying there, there are probably countless other situations where both informal and, and formal case conferences might be really helpful. I would agree with that. I think all areas of laboratory medicine could benefit from improved collaboration. One of my other roles here at the University of Utah is as an undergraduate medical educator and currently undergoing a process of curriculum redesign and reimagining. And one thread that keeps coming up is medicine is a team sport. We're working together. And so any opportunities we can provide to improve communication, improve collaboration, I think are an ultimate benefit to patients. Okay, final question. In case there are any pathology residents listening to this podcast, or maybe medical students, here's your opportunity to make your case why they should consider going into COAG. I would suggest that you should consider a career in laboratory medicine and specifically hemostasis and thrombosis testing because it's a challenging and rewarding way to spend your career. You get to think like a detective and solve medical mysteries. That's one of the things that really attracted me to pathology as a career, is that process of diagnosis, uncovering, figuring out what might be going on with a patient, and providing that reassurance that, yes, we've identified a potential cause and we can move on with the treatment process. I can't think of a better way to spend my career. Karen Moser, thank you so much for being on LabMind today. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. 
LabMind is sponsored by ARUP Laboratories, a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. Our producer is Sheree Peterson, with audio engineering by Isaac Acosta-Alvarez. You can also find other LabMind episodes at arup.utah.edu, along with an extensive video lecture library providing free CME and CE credits for medical and laboratory professionals. Subscribe to LabMind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review in order to help others find the podcast.